Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Overwatch Precision is a team of civilians and combat veterans based in Phoenix, Arizona, that employ industry-leading production methods, coatings, and materials in their striker-fired polymer-framed pistol trigger systems. With an internal engineering team focused on thoughtful design, Overwatch's flat-faced and curved triggers safely deliver a mechanical advantage to your carry or duty Glock, Walther, CZ, P10, and Smith & Wesson MMP 2.0 with improved function and increased accuracy. See more at overwatchprecision.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filstered make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4 V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Hey everyone, Matt Lanter here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. At least I think this might be a Modcast. Doing something a little differently, very different. Uh, I'm going to be doing a slight presentation, not a slight. I'm going to be doing a presentation. Um, going to be talking about people in crisis. So last week I did a, a three-hour presentation or presentation, depending on where you're from, on response to critical incidents. So when I was given this assignment, this was for my agency. When I was given this assignment, I was told, okay, three hours, Response to crit critical, critical incidents. Awesome. No problem. We're going to talk about how we're setting up our gear, uh, having our, our stuff, uh, knowing what, uh, what the more likely targets are that we'd respond to, uh, active shooter, all that. No, it's people in crisis. That's what we're going to discuss. Oh. Okay, so we're going to discuss people in crisis for three hours. So I put something together. This episode shouldn't be three hours. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure if this is actually going to be a modcast. It might just be a separate video. If it turns out to be trash, it will be deleted. We'll see. Have some people watching that will give me some feedback. One of the things I like to say at the beginning when I can, definitely at the end, is make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. At the beginning of this episode, there were the sponsors. If you like what they do, make sure you follow them on social media. Make sure you like their stuff. Make sure you share it, if you, if, especially if you use it. Same with primary and secondary. We have 736, no, 300, 300, I don't know. We have a lot of groups on Facebook. They're all for your use. They're all very focused on specific topics. We have a sniper group. We have an outdoors, we're not, yeah, we have, is it uh, survival? Uh, one talking about gear. We have one talking about apparel, all kinds of stuff. We also have a forum, primaryandsecondary.com slash forum stuff that's all there too laid out very similarly as a matter of fact a little secret for those of you that don't know if you look at all of the the primary and secondary facebook groups 
I have them laid out similar to a forum where you have specific topics and they, you just talk about that. Amazing. Cause I'm a big fan of that format. I'm a big fan of linear thought. And so we'll start a conversation and stay along this path. So those that read it long, read along a week from now, understand what's going on and then also can add on. So we have that. We also have Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash primary and secondary, you can help support this whole network. That includes hosting. That includes video uh, software. That includes all kinds of crap. We have so much stuff going on on primary and secondary. And honestly, it's all free for your use. Um, now we do have Discord. Discord, you get access to that if you're a Patreon subscriber. Um, but really the, the meat and potatoes, the real meaningful content that I produce, that will never, you'll never have to pay for that. That will always be available. So I'll never do a paywall for that. Patreon just helps pay for the bills um, or pay the bills. So make sure, make sure you're supporting those sources that you found to be beneficial. If there are people on Patreon, on primary and secondary that you appreciate their insights, make sure you find them and make sure you share. So going back to this, this topic of people in crisis, um, I noticed, so, and, and let me, let me preface this with, I'm a, I'm a cop, been a cop since uh, last century. I am not a social worker. I am not a, uh, a mental health professional, I'm not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, anything like that. That being said, though, I frequently, almost daily, it seems, it's definitely weekly, multiple times a week, respond to people that are having some form of mental crisis. That includes people that are having suicidal thoughts, people that are trying to commit suicide, people that are having issues managing their children. I'm getting calls on a regular basis, calling, getting called to people's houses where they don't want to be a parent anymore, or they, they, they can't. They've been pushed to a point where it's difficult for them to process and to be able to manage their kid. This is a real problem. This, is, this isn't just where I live. COVID was not at all helpful in any of this. COVID made it worse. I have a 12-year-old daughter who still has some issues with going places or it's definitely affected her, her schoolwork because she had a year of, of online schooling, which that was not conducive to her development as a person socially. So we have this, we have all these things that are going on and police are being called regularly to help people solve their problems. Now, when I became a cop and still I became a cop to help people, part of helping people is to help them through crisis. Now, some people might, some, uh, I don't know if it would be a newer cop or a, or a younger cop or a younger cop or an older cop will go, well, that's not my job. That's not within my job description. Kind of is. I'm, I'm, I work for a city. I work for the people in that city. When they need my help, I respond. I've responded to people that are having utility issues. I've responded to tires that need changing. I've, got, I've, had, I've not gotten a cat out of the tree. We leave that for fire. But there are all kinds of things we do as cops. And one of the most important things that we do is help people that are in mental crisis, because who knows what they're going to do. I, I can't predict it. I don't know what they're going to do. So what I can do is I can minimize their impact. I can minimize what their, what the potential can be. I can try to talk to them as much as possible and guide them to help But really, similar to our uh, a conversation we had, a modcast two or three ago, we talked about school shootings. One of the things about a school shooting, by the time law enforcement gets there, it might be too late. With people having mental issues, if they're in mental crisis, it has been too late. We've responded after the fact. People have already killed themselves. People have already, they've already checked out. So before I really get into this presentation, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up some ideas. Some of these ideas include preparing. 
if you live with someone, if you're related to someone, if you yourself, and there's nothing wrong with this, have some form of a, of, of a mental struggle. If you already know you have some form of a mental condition, and I don't mean this sarcastically, this isn't a joke, this is serious. If you already know that there's a problem, you need to already have a plan. And this plan includes having no or knowing who to contact. When you find yourself in crisis, you might not be able to think clearly enough to, uh, to enact this plan. People immediately around you, the people you're closest to need to be aware of this and need to be on, on board with this plan um, locally. So I live in Northern Utah. We have a place called Bear River Mental Health. Um, we also have uh, the Behavioral Health Unit, and I'll refer to it as BHU. These are all resources that we have. These are things that we can have already in place before we need them. If myself or my spouse or my kid, if I already knew one of us have some underlying problem, where do I go? This is, this is what I need to know beforehand. Do I already have a counselor? Do I already have a therapist? Who are they? How can they be contacted? Who were their after, after uh, excuse me, who were their after hours contact? Unfortunately, I've responded to multiple incidents where I was speaking to the patient and I said, hey, have you spoken to your therapist? And they said, yeah, they said, call the police. Well, what the hell are the police going to do here? Call 911. Okay, and I'm going to talk about this in the slideshow, but fire EMS, police, we can help transport. We can't mitigate problems. We can try our hardest to lessen their impact, but none of us are mental health professionals. Now, fortunately, also where I live, we have a, I wish I could remember what, it's, uh, what it stands for. It's called MCOT. It's a division of uh, the Bear River Mental Health. And essentially what they do is they have the ability to uh, respond. So they can respond two different ways. If someone is in crisis, they need support. If they are armed, if they're a danger, they can contact through phone. If they're not, if I'm in immediate contact with the, with the subject, I can call and a representative, a therapist, can respond to my location and I stand by as security and they talk to the person on site, which is amazing. Absolutely wonderful. Um, basically as a cop, the way this works is I respond or I might not respond depending on the situation, but I essentially hand it over to them and they take it over and then they call me back and, or I talk to them in person and then they say, this is what happened. And then I put in my report done. Because ultimately, is it a law enforcement problem? Not really. But is it something we're called to, to, to help with? Yes. So that's still our duty. Now, that being said, there are officers who are incredibly good, at, very skilled at talking to people that are in crisis. These officers are amazing how they can talk people down. I remember responding to an incident with a 12-year-old who, I don't remember if he was on or off his medication, but he was having a huge mental issue where it turned to violence. Well, we're just talking about a 12-year-old here. And this is a repeat customer. Parents don't know what to do. Call the police. We respond. We have this officer who responds not only talks to the kid, calms him down, brings him down to a calm level. So when we responded, mom had this kid pinned down to the ground and they were fighting. Officer responds, kid calms down. Kid agrees. Yeah, officer can drive me to the mental health unit. How awesome is that? That's not always the case. It takes some years to develop that kind of uh, 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 communication skill. And that's again, and that's something I've said in the past when baby cops or people that want to be cops are asking, Hey, what do I, what should I do? What should, should I take all these gun classes? No, take a speaking class. Cause that's, that's what we're going to be using the absolute most. So let's get into this delightful presentation of
response to critical incidents. So right now what I'm going to do is uh, basically do a screen share. Again, this is this is geared towards law enforcement. That doesn't mean it's not there isn't necessarily useful information for everyone. There's a lot of commonality with fire, with EMS, with law enforcement, and with everyday citizens. That being said, fire, EMS, cops are also citizens. So let's do a screen share. Okay. Sarcastically, jokingly, I put this picture up as response to critical incidents because that's what I was assigned. I didn't know that we were talking about people in crisis because some agencies, this is their response to it. Like any other call, they kind of have to be hand-tuned, not hand-tuned, they have to be, I can't think of the right word, customized to the incident. I can't respond to everything the same way. Sometimes this is what's needed. And you guys seeing the, the slides okay? Now, people are going to be concerned about the, uh, the, prox uh, the, the uh, proximity officer to subject. Yeah, I understand that. The, what we're conveying here is it's not always we have guns drawn, badass cop, whatever. It's important to get to their level. Help them understand where we're coming from, if they can even perceive what's going on. Because as a police officer, I've responded, and I'm going to get it, go over this. As a police officer, there have been multiple times where I've responded to an incident where the, the subject is seeing things that aren't there. Or they don't even know that I'm there. So is mental health crisis incident, is that a police or fire EMS call? I, uh, when I first started seeing some serious issues and our call volume went up, it skyrocketed with um, the amount of calls that we had to take for, for uh, mental health subjects, mental health issues. I went and contacted local fire EMS. And I said, hey, what do you guys do with this? And the captain I spoke to, or assistant chief, had an awesome answer. And he said, look, we're blood and guts. We are not mental. And so we both kind of came to the conclusion, hell, we're both out of, out of we're fish out of water responding to these. We can transport. And we kind of, we, we uh, discuss commonalities. Fire MS aren't, unless you have some specialized unit where I live, fire EMS are not the solution to mental health. Now, there are going to be some exceptions. That's if someone's harmed. That's if there might be some form of an overdose. Yeah, we could get med, uh, EMS. EMS also, man, they are awesome talkers. Just like the officer I was talking to talking about earlier, they can talk squirrels out of trees. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of my a lot of my buddies that are fire EMS are absolutely wonderful with these with 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 people that are in crisis. And so we kind of work, we all work together. We've, uh, I, I remember an incident responding to a man who was having, uh, he was having some serious delusions and he, he was concerned because cops were there and his, his, uh, parents were concerned about his welfare. And so we, the parents ultimately just asked, can he get checked out? And so we didn't have grounds to have him taken, um, take away his, uh, not take away his rights. What do you call it? Take him into custody. We had no grounds for taking him into custody. So we had to convince him this is in your best interest. And we were able to do that. And it's because firing or EMS really, they, they did an awesome job. So we yeah, have both cops, at least where I live, cops and EMS, we aren't mental health professionals. We can definitely help though. And we can definitely transport. So the most, most absurd incident you've responded to, for me, the reason I bring this up is what some people might think is absolutely absurd might be that this is the most important thing in their life right now. People are calling 911 because they are in crisis. They are in need. And we might chuckle and we might think poorly of the person that's calling in, but these people are genuinely in need. Now, yeah, there are times that we respond to incidents that are that are called through 911 and they are truly silly. But for the most part that's not what's happening. And the reason people are calling 911 is because there is a crisis and they need help and they don't know who else to contact. 
And that's why it's important for law enforcement to be aware, hey, we are the first line of defense and we need to be good at what we do. And sure, okay, again, we are not mental health professionals. What we can do, though, is we can talk to people. So what's that expectation from the public? We need to be there, plain and simple. We need to be there. We need to listen. We need, we need to find out what the people's problems are, and we need to figure out ways of helping them resolve them. And sometimes it's us talking them into going to a mental health facility. Sometimes it's convincing them to stay somewhere else for the night, or they stay at home and their family goes somewhere else. Now, ultimately, what establishes our authority? Now, there's state law and there's stuff like that, but there is ultimately an expectation, though, from the public. goes back to that other slide. So again, we aren't, the ther we aren't therapists, but we are people that can listen and share experiences and attempt to help. So as a 20 plus year veteran law enforcement officer, what I can use is I can use the experience I have responding to different calls and helping them as example to help people understand, okay, this is, I understand, no, I don't necessarily say I understand where you're coming from, but I say, this is what I've responded to. This is what I've observed. I've helped people with this kind of a problem and this is what worked for them. And having experience respond to this stuff helps every additional call afterwards smooth, run a little more smoothly. Most important thing though is listen. And if you have experiences that, can, that you can share that are beneficial, hell yeah, do it. Because what, one of the main things that we need to maintain is we need to maintain calm. So ultimately, what's our duty as the police? So this is where we start filling in stuff. Ultimately, okay, a majority of my job is on the criminal side. I don't do much with the, um, what do you call it? Definitely don't do, uh, I, I don't do mental health stuff other than responding to it. But there's also, uh, there's the other side of the law. And there is... Civil. Don't do anything with civil. County does civil stuff, but really my primary duty as the police, public safety, enforce the law, community outreach stuff. I love doing those. I do those. I'll do those. I'll do it on a traffic stop. Uh, I'll do, if I run into a group of kids that stop me somewhere, if I happen to be parked somewhere doing a report, I will get out of my car and we're going to do a quick presentation. I typically enjoy it. So let's map out that response. So what I mean by that is, depending on the type of call, what exactly are we doing? So yeah, I might be skipping ahead. If there's someone armed, I might not be responding immediately to their residence. Now, I've had a really, really good conversations with other cops, and they're like, oh, hell no. I'm going to respond and I'm going to do a perimeter. Okay. Um, with that, one of the things that I bring up is if we're responding to an incident, and I can think of several where officers wound up, and we knew this ahead of time, officers wound up shooting the individual because they, they use the, the term that I'm not a fan of, uh, suicide by cop. Basically, the, the individuals force the officer's hands either by presenting a firearm or, or shooting towards the officers. So how do we avoid that? Well, if we maintain a distance, does that, could that stop the officers from having to shoot the person? Yeah. So all these incidents, it's again, none of them are going to be the same. Now, if I'm responding to an incident where I have um, a mom who is tired of their kid and they just want the kid taken to the, the detention center. Okay, I'm going to treat that so much differently than someone who is just overdosed on pills and they're rampaging in their house among their family. On my way, I'm thinking of what my initial um, response is going to be, where I'm going to be parking. Uh, what are alternatives? What if, I, what if I respond on scene and they're already outside? What if I arrive on scene and they've barricaded themselves inside? What do I do? At what point do I pull family members out of the house and have them go somewhere else? What are the resources that I have available to me? 
Um, is this an incident where I should be making actual physical con not physical contact, but do I want to be in close enough proximity where they have the ability to harm me? What room is this going to be in? These are all things to consider. So what kind of mental issues do we respond to and why are they calling us? Because they are in need. Uh, we respond to everything. People that are suicidal, people that are having severe depression, people that are having anxiety and attacks, you name the mental issue and we probably respond to it. A lot of these responses are very similar. The bottom line is who's in danger. So some, some considerations for that response, something, something that I have to earn or that I have to urge with uh, law enforcement on a regular basis is every encounter we have, there's at least one firearm involved and that's the one in our possession that does, but that's, that is, there is one who knows how many others are there. That means a couple things. That means we need to constantly be aware of our surroundings. We need to constantly assess and not be comfortable in where we're standing. We also need to be aware of our proximity to subjects and other people around. This is basic COP 101. During our interview stance, weapon side away, that kind of stuff. Having a good retention on your firearm. Practicing retention skills. Another thing to consider, are others in danger? If I'm responding to a house, families calling in saying, hey, uh, my husband is suicidal. He has a shotgun. We've all left. Who's in danger right now? Husband. Is it illegal to, for suicide? Or is, is it illegal? <laughs> I can't even talk. Suicide is not illegal in Utah. So is he breaking a law? There could be a disorderly. Do, is that the route we really want to go? Some may say yes, some may say no. These are things to consider. Ultimately, who is in danger? If person, if we get information that the person wants to go out by suicide by cop, if we respond and we walk up to the front door and knock on the door, what's our backstop when we're being shot at? Is it the bus full of nuns and orphans behind us? Is it a good, good idea to go right to the front door and knock? Is it better to maybe make a phone call, maintain distance, not let him know exactly where our location is? Is it advisable to just tell him, hey, do it. We'll call up the cleanup crew when you're done. Yes, yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, we call professionals to, to make contact. Um, if they're not available, guess who's up? We are. So ultimately, what are the factors determining that urgency and exigency? It's danger. Who, who is in, ultimately in danger? If the only person in danger is the individual, we can take our time. If the person has, if the subject has family or friends or neighbors or someone is in, if he's walking down the street with a gun shooting, that's, that's urgent. There are some huge exigency where we need to respond and stop the threat to the public. But if they're in their own home, they're not shooting. Who's, it, who's, it, who's the person possibly in, in harm's way? They are. I don't need to be quick about my response. At least I don't need to, I don't need to put it, I don't need to put others in danger at my response because that's something a lot of people also don't consider. Anytime I turn on my emergency equipment on my vehicle, turn on my reds and blues, my, my overheads, or the siren, people tend to forget how to drive. So if we have someone in crisis in their own home with a firearm, no one else is around and they're threatening to kill themselves. Am I putting the public at risk, just turning on my overheads and trying to speed to their location? I think so. I think so. Now others are going to disagree with me, but the only person in danger is the subject. And that's not legal to kill yourself. And seeing how people react when I turn on my overheads, I avoid putting on my overheads. And I leave that for critical instances where, where people are in danger. So the differences between adult and child incidences, ultimately parents have a lot to say, or have a lot to do with it. Um, with adult, we, there can be a little bit more time taken. With children, 
depending on what they're doing, again, every incidence, every incident is going to be different. Responding to a kid having a, having a meltdown, I'm not going to be going lights and siren unless they've got an ax and they're chopping people up. Adult having the same problem? Nope. No lights and siren. Who has the potential of uh, creating the most harm for others? Well, kids can be very unpredictable. So it's, again, difficult to say. What is the history of the, of the subject? What's the history of the house? What's the history of the parents? Because a lot of this, a lot of the behavior can either be inherited or learned. And going to a, going to a house where we are there regularly because of parents' poor behavior, most likely the children are picking up on that as well. MCOTs are our uh, mental health facility or our mental health uh, call-out guys. Can we call them out? Do you have a resource that you can call? Because I know some agencies have specialized units that respond to mental health crisis. Now, most likely where you're, if you're working in an area that has that, they're already paged out. But for people like me, where I need to make that assessment and I need to determine, hey, do we need to call out these people? It's, it's different. So keeping weapons away, especially if they've taken steps for self-harm, goes right into the next one. Typically, where do we where do we have weapons? Typically, bedrooms could be offices, definitely kitchens, because kitchens have knives and stuff like that. I'm not talking about guns, but definitely knives and kitchens. If you're able to, if you're in direct contact with the subject and they are not armed, is it a bad idea to maybe even have them step outside on the porch if there's a porch or if there's somewhere to go? Or would it be a bad idea just to sit in the front room? With that room or with that in mind, you might want to have your backup arranged in such a way that they're able to close off access to certain rooms like that. So they can't go, go into the kitchen to get a knife real quick or a bedroom to get a gun. That being said, even in a living room, hell, we have people that probably have guns stashed. People listening right now have guns stashed in their living room. So no room, especially because this is their control. This is their domain. They know what's going on. We're just responding to it. We need to be, we need to be constantly vigilant. But typical known areas for weapons, bedrooms, potentially closets, especially near a front door or an uh, exterior door, kitchen with knives, stuff to consider. So the incident needs me to be in contact with a person or allow, I should say allows me to be in contact with the, with the subject things for me to consider are my distance. Now, again, I'm responding to this incident. I know that there's at least one firearm here. That's the one that I'm carrying. People talk about Tuller regularly, 21 feet, 21 feet. Yes. 21 foot response. That's not necessarily the case. That's if everyone is aware of what's going on and the responding person who's supposed to shoot is just waiting for it to happen. More recently, they've changed that, that Tuller concept to out to 36 feet, but we can extend that slightly if we put obstacles in their way. If we have a table or a couch or something, if we're using angles to our advantage, I don't want to stand in a manner where I, the person has direct contact to me without, they just have to take a couple steps and they are on me. That's a bad thing, especially if, if there might be a couple of them. That's a bad thing with this kind of, with this kind of incident, it is not a bad idea to have backup, but that's not always possible, at least where I work. So if I'm able to put a couch between myself and the subject or be able to keep an eye on them, but have a wall using an angle is an advantage because every advantage I have is providing me more reaction time and more reaction distance. So the example I gave in the class was if I have, if I have an unobstructed straight line from me to my subject, how, how difficult is it, is it for them to get to me? Not very. Now, if I put some tables in between them, between us, or if I put a couch in between us, how easy is the response or how easy will they access me? It will be more difficult. That in turn will give me more response time. So that's important to keep in mind. And that actually applies to everything. Hell, that applies to dealing with the crazy person in the parking lot when you're at Walmart, because that's where all the crazy people are. 
one thing that was interesting for me to learn was that their yeah, perceptions are reality, but what they might be seeing or hearing might not be what we're hearing and seeing. I respond. I remember early in my career responding to a little old lady's house and she was complaining about the people. And that's about the extent of what I had for my notes on what I was responding to. And what it turned out, it was this lady was having some form of dementia and she was seeing people kind of like little Oompa Loompas. And so frail little old lady sitting on her couch, obviously lined in plastic. The carpet had plastic over it. Everything had plastic. She's old. Smelled like old lady. I sit on a chair across from her. I'm asking her, so tell me what's going on. And she starts telling me, yeah, they, they keep on turning, turning off lights and, and they, oh, there's one right there. And I kind of slowly look and there's nothing there. And it was really, really, really creepy. And then she said something about one was sitting right next to me. Just kind of look and, you know, oh, there's nothing there, but she's having an issue. What she's seeing is reality. Now, I'm not going to say, yes, I see them. And they're telling me, you need to go get some help. No, ultimately what I did was I wound up contacting a family member and they took her to, I guess, the hospital. It wasn't necessarily in it. As a matter of fact, I remember medical responding and then they just kind of shook their head and said, yeah, this isn't anything for us to do. So I wound up basically talking to, I think it was a daughter. I don't remember. <laughs> I say that with a question mark at the end of that statement, like you, you have the answer for me. Um, but basically the, 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 the loved one, kind of took over and took over, took her somewhere. I don't remember if it was a, there was an issue with their medication or what, but creepy as hell. And she, what she was seeing was reality. A lot of these, uh, like, this is not that uncommon. I've now responded to many calls like that where people are seeing or hearing things that aren't there. I do want to hear, I want this, the subject to tell me what they're hearing. I want to, I want to know what they're seeing. That kind of gives me a clue as to what they're doing or what they're potentially going to do. Um, these hallucinations, they could be, there could be uh, an onset due to a mental illness or drugs. And I've responded to both. Again, they're both creepy. Ultimately, is there a crime occurring? Are we investigating a crime? Most likely not. And for me personally, if it's drug induced, is there really a crime? No, I'm more concerned about the person's welfare much more concerned about the person's welfare than getting some cheap arrest because they're on something. So ultimately, this is something for you to consider. If someone's having hallucinations, what potential danger do they pose? Physically, what danger do they pose anyway? So if they're seeing something that isn't happening and they feel that they're being threatened, could they be a threat to you? Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. So maintain that safe distance. Okay, now I'm going to talk about uh, suicidal incident considerations. So responding to suicidal people on a regular basis. We're using those resources that we have available. Um, just like what I said before, what danger do they pose to the public? Because that's going to be, that's the key concept for me to, to, to bear in mind with what, how my response is going to be. If they're an active threat to the public, I'm going to have to be a little bit more, my response is going to be more urgent and I'm probably going to, I should be making potentially direct contact with the subject, depending on the totality, my favorite totality of the circumstances. Let's see here. I'll go, I'll cover that next. Um, and as I said before, if we're, if we're approaching the house or if we're parked in front of the house or if we're parked nearby and they see us and they want to shoot, if we're the target, what is the backstop? And it is that bus full of nuns and orphans, most likely. If you work where I work, a lot of residential areas, there are definitely some areas where it's farm. I personally still don't want to be shot at. But if I am, I don't want to have a school or a house behind me. Because if they miss, where does the bullet go? And I don't know if many people think about that. And so... There was a recent incident, um, dangers of broadcasting an attempt to locate with something like this. So we have a suicidal individual. They're in a vehicle. How much harm can someone create if they're in a vehicle? Now, 
there was an incident involving a friend of mine where there was an attempt to locate broadcast for a suicidal individual who was a juvenile. Ultimately, it ended up in a car chase where the subject rolled their vehicle and was killed. The responding officers from two different jurisdictions, other than where my, my buddy works, they were all sued because of their actions. Already talked about, when we turn on the overheads, what does that do to people's ability to drive? Their, their, their brain leaves them. They, they forget, they stop in the middle of the intersection. They might go in the turn lane and stop right there because there's reds and blues coming up. So what is that doing to the thinking of the suicidal subject? They might be thinking, oh, good, he's finally here. He's going to put me out of my misery. Do I want to be in a position like that? No. Could that be putting other people in jeopardy? Yes. Everything I'm saying are things to consider. I'm not telling you this is how you need to respond or this is how you should respond. These are things to consider. So putting out an attempt to locate, to locate a suicidal individual. Number one, where you live is suicide illegal. Where I live, it is not. So what is the purpose of putting out an attempt to locate? It's a welfare check. Okay, do I have legal justification to pull someone over for that reason? What are the possible repercussions of pulling someone over? Would that possibly put you in a situation to force your hand where you'll have to shoot the person? So attempt to locate comes out for a suicidal individual. They drive by me. I'm in my patrol car. I see it. I pull him over. I approach the vehicle. He produces a gun. I draw down. I shoot him. Could that have been avoided? Stuff to consider. Again, this is not, I'm not telling you how to respond. Just stuff to consider. Um, something that might be difficult for some people is to, and this might also be difficult for a family member to ask, ask if they intend on harming themselves, because that might help give you sufficient justification to have someone transported or taken into custody for their own, their own well-being. Over here, what a pink sheet is, is basically is an officer, a police officer has the ability to take someone into custody, temporary custody, to take over to a facility. Um, if they are going to harm themselves, they have a means, they are, they, there's basically a, a series of criteria for it. Same with uh, here, here in Utah, there's also what's called a blue sheet. Blue sheet is uh, for a doctor to basically commit someone. And that, what we're talking about is involuntary commitments. So asking someone if they intend on self-harm is part of that. Because if, if you're getting the idea, yeah, they, they, they want to kill themselves and we don't know, I can't take anyone into custody. But if we establish, yeah. And, they, and most people that I deal with, they're open about it. The answers I get go anywhere from, yes, I do plan on harming myself. And that's kind of uncomfortable, but they're honest. And I tell them how much I appreciate that the, the fact that they're, they're being honest with me about it. And I try everything I can to give them help. The other answer I get is not right now, but I was. That's going to be a judgment call. Because if it's not on their immediate mind, are they an active threat? Stuff to consider. I, I should have that flashing on the screen or, or, or background in a low tone constantly through this discussion. And lastly, the, what I get is no, not intending to hurt myself at all. Never thought that. They just got drunk. Okay. Have a nice night. People are concerned for you. That's one thing I bring up is, yeah, there are people concerned about you. I am personally concerned because I'm even here because I'm concerned for you. Um, overdoses are, are also a problem, especially when, when it comes to uh, law enforcement response, because and this is this is kind of my smart ass part. At some point, this could be a medical incident because we have someone medically who could be helped. So what I do is I ensure the scene is secure and then I let medical take over because really with, with overdoses, yeah, I might be talking to someone, but for the most part, the medical personnel are going to be the ones that are going to be able to do the most good with the situation. And this is the kind of the asterisk to the discussion. This is where medical, absolutely. They are going to be the saviors. They are going to save the day. They're the heroes. I'm just, I'm just, I'm the canary making sure it's safe. 
and I'm yeah ensuring same uh, scene safety. So responding to behavioral issues with children. Now the top one, another smart ass thing, responding to behavioral issues with children. Now the if you're listening to this and you can't see the screen, I have my top point. It says tell parent to be a parent and stop calling the police. That's 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 struck. Can't we can't do that. We can't actually, but initially we need to determine if there's some kind of a medical or mental condition. What's going on? Why is the, why is the kid acting this way? Are they a hazard to others? One of the things that I also like to do is uh, determine, okay, what's the normal course of action with this kind of behavior? What's changed to cause this? If this is a brand new behavior, what's changed recently? What may have helped this manifest? A lot of people are, are, are they live off patterns. And if all of a sudden everything's completely normal and kid goes absolutely crazy. Okay. Let's, let's backtrack and figure out what was the stimuli stimulus to doing that. And this is the same with, with adults. Hey, what did you, what did, did you change something in your, did you eat something differently? How's your sleep? How's work? How's school? Tell me about your social interactions. If you have the ability to have a conversation with someone um, with, if someone has a regular, this is a constant issue. Obviously we don't need to track down the behavior, but for outlying behavior. Okay. Let's try to figure out, is there something within our control that we can change? So this doesn't happen again. Super important to talk to all parties involved. Hell, I'm going to talk to siblings. Tell me what's happening. What happened today? What happened yesterday? Talking to parents, talking to kids, you know, talking to kids. You can get a lot of information. You can get some real truth out of the kids. If it's a parent that's the subject, then you're going to find out stuff you didn't want to know. That's probably not even relevant to the, to the incident, but you're going to find out and you're going to know it all. It's going to be awesome. And then you're going to have nightmares. So ultimately try to determine what that issue is. What's conflicting with the intent with the child's intent and the parent. I respond to a lot of those kids having a fit because they got their PlayStation taken away or whatever. Okay. Let's talk to the kid. This is the way the world works. Is this crisis for the kid? It's crisis for us now. For the parents, sometimes we respond to those calls where the parent doesn't want to be a parent anymore. Is the parent in crisis? Possibly. Then we come in and we talk to everyone. We try to calm it down. We try to explain things. The last one is going to a different family member's home and option. That one can work. If, if we don't have anyone that's actively in danger, if others aren't in danger, if we just have someone that's misbehaving, maybe some, hey, go to grandma's house, go to your mom's house, go to uncle's house, aunts, doesn't matter. Separate parties that are involved. If, if we determined the location or the people that live in this location are the, the, the problem. I don't know how many uh, domestics I've gone to where nothing's been physical. It's been completely verbal. Are those people in crisis? Yeah. Yeah, they are. And they're upset and they're angry. And you know what? Best course of action, hotel, go to a friend's house. It's an option. Ultimately, we aren't going to be solving the world's problems, but we can help find some solutions. And part of this helping find solutions is being well-versed in what the options are. And knowing what the options are can be based in experience. Ah, use of force. Use of force is a, so we kind of talked about that with that traffic stop. At what point is use of force justified on a mental patient? Just like everything else. Here in the state of Utah. Deadly force? I can use deadly force if, even if it's a mental subject, believe it or not. If there is an active threat of death or serious bodily injury to myself or a third party, not the subject. So inert, inert gun right here and someone has a gun to their head and they say they're going to kill themselves. Who's in danger right now? Now, potentially I am because to do that is nothing, but I can't shoot the guy because he's holding a gun to his head. Ultimately, what level of force is justified? It depends on the incident. I might need to handcuff someone. I might need to tase someone. I might need to take someone in some form of a control 
controlled using risk control techniques. We might need to do, do a piggy pile. Depends on the, depends on the incident, but it's treated like everything else. It all depends on their actions and their level of threat. How much danger do they present? We can't treat them differently because that puts us and people around us in jeopardy. So ultimately, what standard do we base our decisions on with the use of force? It's going to be state law, case law, individual department policy, directives provided by the chief. And usually that stuff is well documented. What a reasonable person would do, Facebook and social media. So this was actually uh, presented as a multiple guess with E, Facebook, social media as a smart ass remark, but there's some truth to it. Need to be reasonable. And it kind of goes to D, which is reasonable person. Um, anything we do can be taken out of context, especially if, if it's recorded, it can be taken out of context. So ultimately, what determines if someone's taken into custody? Again, what crime is committed here? It's not illegal for, to have someone, if someone's having a panic attack, guess what? Not illegal. Someone wants to commit suicide? Not illegal. Have they committed a crime? Is it appropriate to address the crime at the incident when they're in crisis? Or would it make more sense to maybe file an information with the attorney, with the prosecuting attorney, where it can be followed up on later on? Now, if we're responding to something and someone's physically been injured outside of being the, the individual, if our subject hurts someone else, is it appropriate to take them into custody? Most likely, yes. There's a possibility, though, the jail may say, take them to mental health. That's going to be dependent on where you where you work. Um, actively, are they a threat to others? Are they a threat to me? More importantly, are they a threat to if I leave? What are they going to do to the people after if they've committed a crime? What are they going to do to people around them immediately around them? Do we need to have them committed because they are an active danger to themselves and others? Are they a threat to themselves? And then again, yeah, are we going to the behavioral health unit or going to the jail? If ultimately, as someone who worked in a jail for a couple of years, if there is a possibility of an inmate or a prisoner being transported to a hospital instead of being booked in, jail will urge, move the liability over to them as quick as possible. Hey, uh, jail will take them as soon as possible. We just need to make sure that they're cleared and it's okay for them to come to the jail because there may be some underlying issues that may uh, preclude them from being even, even able to be accepted. Are there any other options? Is it possible to go to the friend's house, the uncle's house, whatever? And so, yeah, the last thing on this one slide is uh, how does one obtain a pink or blue sheet? Again, blue sheet is, is from a doctor. I think she does from law enforcement and it's to have an, uh, a commitment to, to take someone into custody. And so ultimately they have to be a harm to themselves, others, and show that along with some other steps. So this is the part for me that is the most important out of this entire lecture. And it is recognizing issues on our side of the incident. This is res cops responding and being sucked into the incident where they're no longer thinking logically and rationally. And this happens. Cops get, okay, so how many, how many instances have there have occurred where a cop is in a high-speed chase, car finally pulls over, cop runs up to the car, pulls the driver out and beats the shit out of him? Was that rational? Is that logical? Would a reasonable person do that? That's, um, that's, no, that's, that's bad guy stuff. Cops shouldn't be doing that. Do they? Yeah. So as a cop, I need to recognize behaviors in myself and I need to recognize behaviors in my coworkers. On an incident, on an incident, if I've worked with someone long enough, if I'm recognizing unusual pauses or hesitations, that could be an indicator. Okay. The officer might, there might be a lot on his plate right now from home. He might need a little bit of help. I might need to jump in and maybe take over having responded to other instances where we have someone in crisis. 
the officer kind of ran out of things to say and kind of was just grasping at anything. I chimed in and kind of took over the conversation, giving the officer, responding officer, the primary officer, an opportunity to collect his thoughts and then take back take over. Um, as the backup officer in that position, what I was doing was I had to keep, I needed to maintain uh, awareness of our environment and what the subject was doing. I also need to see what my officer is doing. And if he needs help as backup, I'm going to jump in there and help him. Because is it possible to respond to an incident where someone's in crisis and the responding officer makes things worse? Absolutely. And it doesn't take, it, 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 could, it could be a very short fuse. Responding to some, any incident, and there's excessive physicality. If you're seeing punches getting snuck in while taking someone into custody, putting them into cuffs, doing unnecessary, doing twist locks or things like that, and going a little too far where you were, where you were able to see, okay, the, the officer was already getting compliance and the officer kept on going. You might need to talk, tap the officer out, say, hey, look, let, let me take over, take a breather. I got this. Now, hopefully the officer, the responding officer, not you, has the ability to take a second and think about that and recognize that's not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Take a breather. Let the other officer take over. Hell, let him take him, take the subject to the jail if necessary. Because the last thing we need are charges against the officers. But it's also important to make sure that other people are aware of, or make, make sure that the officer is aware of that wasn't, that was uncalled uncalled for. And there might need to be an investigation depending on the level of unnecessary force. Cause that's what we're talking about. Responding to domestics or incidents where tensions are high, people are screaming. And then the officers are not matching their voice to be able to speak above them, but matching them to get into a yelling match trying to match that behavior to the environment and not remaining calm and collected and thinking that officer might need to be tapped out. I've responded to plenty of incidents where that occurs. Hey, let, let me take over. Let me talk. Uh, yeah. Play back up for a second. And I'll let me, let me talk to them and I'll let me see if I can do something. Let, let me uh, try my hand at this. Responded to plenty of instances where the officers just freeze. And so we're standing there. I'm back up. We have our subject. We have our primary officer and they're just standing each other, staring at each other, standing. I'm officer Landfair. This is what, this is what's going on. This is why we're doing what we're doing. We got a call about this. People are concerned. Tell me about what's going on. How do you feel? How about them Mets? A lot of times that's with newer officers but it's something to recognize. And it's also something for the officer to be aware of. They might not even be aware of, you know, it was like a good 20 seconds before you actually said something. Um, indecisiveness, responding to that call and not exactly knowing. And let me take, let me, I'll take a couple steps back from there. Responding to the call and having absolutely no idea of what the next step should be. When you know the person we've had, we've talked about this. We've responded to these. We've responded to this house before. And they're having difficulty figuring out what their options are as the officer, what to do with our subjects. Jump in there. Add that. We have a sidebar. Talk to the officer. Hey, this is this is what I'm seeing. These are the options that I'm seeing. What do you think? Those That's actually really, really helpful. Yeah, but most of this is basically coaching, actively coaching as a backup officer. And then lastly on this is uncharacteristic uh, behavior from the officer. So if an officer constantly, consistently behaves in a certain manner and responds to a, uh, a call and his behavior changes drastically, that might be, a kind, he might have, there might be something going on. There might be a lot on his plate. He might, his mind might not even be on, uh, on the call. Might not be a bad idea to switch them out. At the, at the very last of this slide, I, I, I said something. Uh, let's see here. If you see this, the officer may need a nudge, some help, or time out from the incident. As the backup cover officer, we are consistently assessing the entire incident. And that includes not just the subjects. That doesn't just include the environment, but it also includes the officer. 
the primary officer that we're backing up. So this is something that I've, I've been really passionate about recently and I've brought it up multiple times. And this I believe is my last slide. Ways of reducing work stress. And this isn't just cop. This can be everything. This first line though is for cops. <laughs> Your profession is police officer. That shouldn't define who you are. My buddy Dave said that not too long ago. And I said, you know what? That is right. Because I don't need to, I, I don't need to be a cop 24 seven. I would rather be a husband. I'd rather be a dad. I have so much more enjoyment with that. Now, don't get me wrong. I love being a cop. Find activities, hobbies, friends outside of your profession. So you're not constantly talking about work or work aspects. Now, primary and secondary, that's a lot of cop stuff, a lot of military stuff. Never been military, by the way. A lot of gun stuff. And I genuinely enjoy that. I hell guns. Yeah. I don't really talk about cop stuff that much when I'm off duty. I will talk. I will talk guns. Hell yeah. When off duty, be off duty. Think of the stuff that you're carrying when you're off duty. How much of it's actually necessary? Should you? Okay, this is a sarcastic, smart-ass remark. Should you really be carrying that radio when you're off duty? Should you be carrying that radio when you're off duty? That's what I meant to say. How much can you carry and still be able to be a functional person off duty? Whatever, whatever your mission is. Mission drives the gear. Can I jump on the trampoline carrying all that crap? Or am I better off carrying something that might be smaller, easier to conceal, but sufficient for me to do whatever task I plan on doing? For example, if I'm with my kids or my family. Oh, no. Okay, I'm going to backtrack one. I'm just with my kids. Something happens. I'm, all I'm going to try to do is leave. I want to leave and make sure that they're safe. Now, if I'm with my entire family, I'm going to have my wife take kids and I might try to solve a problem. If I'm by myself, I will be happy to try to solve a problem. Depends on the problem. A lot of people talk about how quickly, how, I can't believe how, how time went by, how, how fast my kids grew up and how much I missed. This next part is kind of attached to it. Stop putting your focus on time off. Enjoy, you, enjoy the time you are living now. No more countdowns to days off because once you're there, once you're on those days off, your countdown back to work starts. So today is my third day off. I have three days off a week. I work tomorrow at 8 p.m. That gives me 22 hours and 14 minutes until I work. That is the wrong mindset. I should not be thinking about any type of countdown. I shouldn't be thinking about when I go back to work, when I leave work, because I'm focusing on time that's ticking away instead of living in the present. Seeing that work is bad and time off is good as we are all programmed, and we absolutely are programmed to see it that way, puts a stigma on work. And it's possible to enjoy work. When I finally had that realization to stop doing these countdowns, when I started realizing if I start focusing on now and not thinking, whoo, days off and my Friday's coming up tomorrow's, tomorrow's Friday. Stop thinking about that. Life improved. Not only did life improve, my days off improved because I stopped doing the countdown. Oh shit. I, oh, this is my last day off. I better make it worth it. No. Cause you know what? I have an, I have more days off coming up. I can focus on now. I can enjoy spending time with my family. I can enjoy doing the things I need to do. Now this whole thing, this last little portion is the most important to focus on now. No more countdowns. And for as long as I remember, there has always been a stigma to work and there shouldn't be. And there's always been such an emphasis on Friday. Oh yeah. Friday night. Then everyone hate Mondays. Mondays can be awesome. They are. And if you hate work that bad, if it's possible, you might want to look at doing something differently. So that's what I have for you.
how long was that? I don't know. Um, so I still, I still actually have some, some people watching. It's amazing. So that was 320 people in crisis. That was the Matt Landfair monologue. I'm thinking about doing more of those. Let me know what you think. Believe it or not, also with, I had some videos that were sprinkled into this presentation. The whole thing did take three. It, it was three hours though. Um, big thanks to the Patreon subscribers, Patreon subscribers, without your support, we wouldn't be able to do this kind of stuff on a regular basis, do all kinds of cool projects and offer all kinds of cool uh, resources. Love to be able to do that. Love to be able to be a source to help other people. Um, big thank you to big text ordinance, overwatch precision, Filster, primary arms, Walther, Those are our sponsors, sponsors for the show. Um, make sure that you are supporting those sources that, that have been beneficial to you. A couple things that I've been talking, I've been talking to the Patreon subscribers and some of the things that we've talked about are more content just from me. So I might be bringing back some of these uh, individual little primers. Someone said that I'm saying that wrong. I'm gonna stick to primer. I'm gonna be doing more of these primers. Uh, a quick five, 10 minute video talking about a specific uh, focus. Um, what were some of the other, some of the other things that I was uh, thinking about and talking to Patreon subscribers about pulling one minute clips from, uh, from these and also maybe pulling a 15 to 30 minute clip from these just for easier sharing. We definitely don't have the same footprint as other similar sources, but we definitely have an impact. And I'm getting feedback on a regular basis, hearing about changes in department policy and even larger DOD side. So that is awesome. If you have any input for me, feel free to reach out to me at, at primaryandsecondary.com. I'm happy to hear it. Um, I think that's pretty much it. I have a couple topics for next week. Uh, we're going to be discussing some concepts, talking about uh, subject matter experts, uh, what it takes to be one, um, a couple, some nuances with it. Uh, we also have another uh, survival one on the horizon talking about fire. We also have another episode talking about, I have to think about this for a second, esoteric um, means of carrying a firearm. And you know what, uh, the more I think about it, the more I think a lot of what primary and secondary presents, what I present is very esoteric. Because it's not widely understood or accepted by a lot of people, only the people that are really pursuing it. And yeah, we're not really low info. Our, our target demographic isn't low information users. Our tar target demographic are a combination of the professional end user and also the end user that looks to be very proficient in what they do. And primarily what, what those focuses are, firearms, gear, equipment, training, mindset, and more training. Tactics, I guess, too. So that's all. I think that is all I have. I'm now going to end this so I can edit. So I'll talk to you later.